you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 28 with me. Genesis chapter 28. We're covering today verses 10 through 22 as we continue our series to the life of uh, the children of Abraham as we look at faith from that perspective. And then I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. I'll read just the first two verses of our section for today, and then we'll pick the other verses up a little bit later. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in the place to sleep. Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord, let me pray for our time. Father, we come to you today asking that you would be with us. I do pray, like in the book of Acts, Lord, that you would fill me with your spirit, that I might speak on your behalf, so that your people are edified. Lord, the message is not about me, uh, it's about you and about your people. And so I pray that you are honored, that you are magnified, that you are glorified, that you are pleased, and that, Lord, in some way, you administer to your people. And Lord, may all the glory go to you. We want you to be lifted high. We want you to be spoken well of by all people because you deserve that. All that we have comes from you and we are extremely appreciative. So be with us during this time, we ask, in the precious name of your Christ, the Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So a while back, I heard a story, uh, an interesting story that caught my attention uh, on the news. Uh, it was about a young man named Travis Kaufman. Travis is uh, currently now uh, 31 years old, and he had moved uh, five years ago to Fort Collins, Colorado, if you're familiar with Colorado area. Uh, and the reason that he had moved there is because he wanted to uh, engage in uh, a more active and outdoor lifestyle. Uh, he's a sports enthusiast. He he likes to work out, and so he wanted to move to a place that was conducive to him living that type of lifestyle. So he moved out to, to Fort Collins. And, and being out there, uh, he had formed a pattern of running uh, outdoors. Uh, this particular day, he was out in the area, I think it was called Horsetooth Mountain Open Space. Uh, I guess it's a national park or something like that there in Colorado. And on this particular day, as he was running, he didn't have any headphones in, and uh, he, as he was making his way down the trail on, I guess, his... Uh, maybe seven to ten mile run or whatever he was doing uh, that day, uh, he heard some rustling behind him as he continued to move forward. Uh, and normally now he, he wouldn't have turned around because uh, there's usually little animals moving around like squirrels because you're outside and in, in the open with everything else. There are other things out there with you. And, but on this particular day, for one reason or another, he decided to turn around and see what it was that was rustling the pine needles behind him. And when he turned around, ten feet away from him was standing a juvenile mountain lion. Um, he then immediately did what, what they recommend for you to do, which is to uh, make yourself as big as possible, to be loud and to try to, to, to seem, um, you know, larger than life so that you might uh, intimidate the, the mountain lion and say, hey, you don't want to engage me in this way. Uh, the juvenile mountain lion, uh, because of, it seems like, from hunger, uh, looked at him and said, well, that's not going to deter me, all that noise you're making. 
but you look like lunch for today. And so the mountain lion uh, pounced and went straight for his throat. Uh, thankfully, uh, he was able to get his hand up in time to block uh, the mountain lion from reaching his throat, and the mountain lion sank his teeth into his arm. Uh, that's when the battle started. Uh, they began to, to tussle and wrestle. The mountain lion clawed at his face, trying to take him down, and he, and he struggled to keep the mountain lion off of him, and finally fell down and rolled down a slope together, the two of them rolling down, fighting the whole way. Uh, thankfully, uh, Travis was able to use whatever he had learned in his life to, uh, to, to have an MMA match right there uh, in, in the woods, you know, and he, uh, he uh, ended up making the lion tap out as he choked him out, literally, uh, to death, uh, and ended up uh, defeating the mountain lion, although bruised, battered, and injured himself. Uh, after he killed the mountain lion, uh, he was able to then run three miles downhill to find another runner on the trail to make it to a parking lot where he was able to be taken to the hospital uh, through, through some people who were there in the parking lot uh, and then live to tell the story to the news. Now, I imagine that when Travis woke up that morning and he was going for a run, that there was nowhere on his radar that he was going to encounter a terrifying experience that day. Uh, and like the mountain lion, often when God shows up in the lives of human beings, uh, it's a terrifying experience and it's unexpected. No one's looking for him when he arrives. Uh, in the book of Genesis, we see that Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, they were not expecting God when he arrived, uh, but he showed up. And that could either be for the good or for the, for the ill. Fear in a good way or fear in a bad way. It's just depending on what's going on when God shows up. Uh, and so today we want to look at an experience of fear in a good way when God does show up unexpectedly, though somewhat terrifying, awe-inspiring, uh, when he does show up, it, it can be somewhat frightening, but, but allows us to, to learn something about who God is and what God is going to do in lives. And today I'm just going to remind you about two simple truths that you already know, and I'm just going to remind you about that from the text today. And so today our story picks up in the life of Jacob. Let me backtrack a little bit just to remind you of some key moments in his life that we've already discussed in weeks past, just to put you in a frame of mind as we move toward this text. Jacob has grown up in a family. Uh, he is a grandson of Abraham, one of the many, because Abraham had a lot of kids. But he's one uh, of the kids that come from the family where the promises have moved down to. Uh, and Jacob uh, has grown up in a house with favoritism. And so that has played itself out uh, in the relationships not being like they should be uh, in a family. And so when the boys grew up, there were some key things that happened that broke the brother's relationship. And remember, these are twins, fraternal twins. But at one point, uh, because of the way Jacob had grown up, he had become an opportunist. And so on one occasion, when his brother was at a point of weakness, he saw an opportunity and he pressed it and took advantage and uh, had his brother uh, sell to him his birthright for nothing. And that didn't leave good feelings in his older brother's life. Uh, some time later, maybe some years later, uh, when his father was aging and had a, a medical condition uh, which uh, caused him to fear for his life, uh, at the behest of his mother, uh, Jacob took advantage of his aging father and deceived him. And as a result of that, uh, stole the blessing that should have belonged to his elder brother. Uh, you can imagine uh, when you've been cheated once, you're like, okay, hey, 
maybe I can get over that. I still have some bad feelings. But to be treated twice out of what you believe is rightfully yours, you can imagine why the anger would build up in Esau. And so Esau became so angry about what his brother had done intentionally to take from him what he felt was his and should have been his, that uh, fury and rage and wrath continued to build until the point it just spilled over. And the only thing that would console Esau was the fact that if he could kill his brother, then things would be okay. And that was the fact that he was making himself be okay with it. When dad dies, I'm going I'm to I'm wipe this guy out. I'm going to pull a cane on him. I'm about to turn the cane and he's about to be able because I'm about to go to work on him. And when this is over with, there won't be any competition left. And so you can imagine the hostility in the home. Now, as a mother who loves your children, you don't want to see your sons kill each other. Uh, and so uh, the mother is interested in preserving the lives of both her sons. And she's very much concerned about uh, what's going to happen to Jacob based on his elder brother's intentions towards him. And so she thinks that the best thing for him to do, as Pastor Mike let us know last week, was for uh, Jacob to be removed from the context uh, for danger. Now, it's interesting how she does it. She goes to her husband, and she talks to him. And perhaps you've done this in your own life. Uh, you come, and you have a real reason why you want something to happen, but you don't want to tell the other person that reason. And so what you do is you come up with another reason to mask the reason, the real reason of why you're doing what you're doing. And so when she shows up in her husband's life, she says, you know what? Uh, I really don't like my daughter-in-laws. I hope none of you have that kind of relationship with your mother-in-law. But... Um, but she says, I don't like my daughter-in-laws, and, uh, and I'm afraid that Jacob might follow in his older brother's pattern of life and marry one of these girls around here, and I don't like the local girls. So we should get him a, another girl from our family and stuff like that, uh, and so I want you to send him away. And so that kind of becomes the reason that Isaac gets buys into this whole thing. Oh, yeah, I like this wife idea. I understand. I'm with you. I understand. That's how we got together and all of that. And so... Jacob ends up going out on a journey. He ends up traveling uh, a journey that's going to be for him over 500 miles. He, he doesn't have modern transportation. This is going to be by foot. So it's going to take him approximately about a month to make the journey on foot. Uh, that's a nice long walk. When we come to the text today, he's about two or three days into the journey, perhaps maybe 50 to 60 miles away from home when we find him in this instance. Uh, he stops at this place, not because there's anything special about the place. Uh, the narrator uh, in the original language emphasizes the ordinariness of the place. Uh, he does tell us later that it's outside of a Canaanite city at that time called Luz, but that's not important. This is a non-important place. And the only reason that Jacob stops here is because it's night. And without the invention of electricity and night lights and street lights and flashlights and headlights, it really becomes hard to travel at night. And so Jacob, because night has fallen upon him, he has to stop because he can't see. That's just the reality of it. And so he stops at this place to lay down. Now, he doesn't go into the city. Perhaps he's a, afraid from, as we saw in earlier passages of Genesis, uh, what the people might do to him if he enters the city. And so he decides to sleep outside of the city in just this ordinary place. And he takes up a, a position. Uh, the text is not clear whether he lays on the stone or whether he just places the stone near his head for protection. Uh, it, it's not clear. So translators have had to make a decision there on how they, how they did. And ESV chose to put it uh, under his head, but the text doesn't say. It could be either way. Uh, and so he does that, and that's when the most interesting of things happen. 
something unexpected happens. Uh, while he falls asleep, uh, he has a very unusual dream. Different than the normal dreams we might have uh, in a normal day if we've had too much to eat at night and we dream weird things that happen. But this was a particular dream that Jacob knew that there was something else going on. And the, the narrator lays it out in such a way that he walks across the different things as if he's painting for us uh, in our modern idea a movie. And he hits the lowest element to the most important element in the dream. So he starts off, and the first thing that we see in the dream that he tells us about is either a stairway or a ladder that has its origin in heaven and comes down to earth. Immediately, our minds should go back to, to Genesis chapter 11 and 10 in that area where there was the Tower of Babel. Remember what humans were trying to do. They wanted to build a stairway to the divine realm, and they were building that, a, a temple for that kind of idea. But here, it's just the opposite. Heaven has reached down to earth. Now, because of the way that the reference works, because the word is only used once, it, it could be a ladder. That's how the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible, seems to be referencing it. Uh, but then some modern translators prefer a staircase, and that's why in some of your translations you have the word staircase, and that's why they're not sure. There's a dilemma. It's a pathway, a portal that's connecting heaven and earth. And that's what he sees first. But then he notices something else that's going on on this heavenly pathway or highway. Uh, on this pathway or this highway, there are the angels of God, and they're ascending and they're descending. They're ascending. They're going back to the heavenly realm most likely to report to God what has been accomplished in his business and what their dealings were on earth. And then while there are those who are making their way back to give their report in heaven, there are those who are descending with new missions on earth. And they're heading out into the earth to accomplish what God's will is on the earth. And so business is being done by these angelic resources, these angelic beings as they move in between the two realms, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And it's at that point that Jacob notices in his dream the most important figure. It's not the staircase. It's not the angels. It's God himself. He sees the God of Abraham and Isaac. And it's interesting what happens. Uh, now, in the text, uh, the way the ESV translated here, uh, holds it that he's standing over the staircase. Because of the pronoun that's used, it either could be referring to Jacob or to the staircase, and he's standing over above. So it could be in the dream that either God is standing above the staircase or he's standing right above where Jacob is sleeping. And in either case, the more, most important thing that happens in the dream is once he fixes his eyes on the creator of all things, it's what the creator says to him that becomes most important. For that, let me take you back to the text starting at verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 
So remember now the story of Jacob. Jacob's been seeking to achieve the very thing that God just gives to him. He's been using human scheming to try to get the blessing from God, the very Abrahamic blessing that God now just gives to him. Uh, For us who have read Genesis, and as you're reading back through, the words sound exactly like the words in Genesis 13, when God first made the promise to Abraham. And so here, there's the mirroring of those words to Jacob to let us know that the Abrahamic promise has now come to him. And in addition to the Abrahamic promise, God tells Jacob he's going to be under his watchful care, and God is going to order the future events of life so that Jacob will be able to return to the land that God had promised to them in the future. He doesn't say when that's going to happen, but he does say at some point in the future, you're going to make it back home. I'm going to bring you back. That's because Jacob is on his way out and he's leaving the land and he's unsure about the future. So Jacob now hears about, you know, um, that he actually encounters, hears about and, and, and engages with the God of his grandfather and father. And this is the first time that Jacob has actually had an encounter with God and his life. His whole life has been simply what others have told him about God. But now, at this moment in his life, he meets the God that he's heard about. And this becomes, in Jacob's narrative, the way the writer is laying, the turning point for Jacob's life. Because at this moment, he starts his faith journey with God. And ultimately, at the end of this faith journey, Jacob is not going to be the same person that we met at the beginning of the story. He's going to be different because God has entered his life. Now, from this encounter, I want to take an aside here because there's a few things that I want to point out by God, about God's character that I don't want us to miss because it's important about who this God is that Jacob is interacting with. Uh, the first thing, there are a number of things we could talk about. I could talk about God's sovereignty, but there are two key things I want to bring out. The first is that this, te- excuse me, this text reminds us that God, the creator, is merciful. And that's important for us, that he's merciful. See, God is willing to work with people who are not ideal people to work with. See, Jacob was on the move, remember, because of his less than honorable behavior with his family members, his less than good behavior and his relationships with his sibling, and that's why he's on the move now. Jacob is not looking for God, has no concern about spiritual things. Uh, out of obedience to his parents, he knows his brother's trying to kill him. That's a good reason to leave home. Um, and secondly, uh, there's an additional reason. Not only are you going to leave home to save your life, but you might get a wife at the end of it. That's a good thing. Meet a nice young lady that you can spend the rest of your life with. That's a good thing. It's a win-win situation. You get to keep living, and you get to get a wife. So, you know, those are good things, motivations in life to leave home. And so he's on this journey, right? Uh, It has nothing spiritual about it. He's not interested in seeking higher spiritual things. He just wants to save his life and make it pleasant for himself. You have to remember that Jacob, for Jacob, he has spent his whole life growing up as the son uh, in a wealthy family. Uh, Genesis has been laying out for us the amount of wealth that this family has. Uh, Abraham, when he left Haran, had wealth. It increased when he went to Egypt. Uh, when he came back and he uh, bequeathed to his son uh, Isaac his possessions, uh, Isaac became richer than his father Abraham. So that, and, and this wealth is some is silver, some gold, but mostly servants. Uh, there's lots of animals and lots of people. So Jacob has spent his whole life uh, being surrounded by people all the time. 
and being in a privileged place. His needs being met, having a position of authority, or always being uh, seen as one of the heirs of the family, a place of, of prominence in society. Uh, and so, so he has grown up in that type of life. But because of his interactions with his sibling, uh, his life is very different now. Uh, he's alone. There are no other people around to help protect him. He's not important. No one else knows him. And now he's poor. He doesn't have the resources that he had once enjoyed for all of these years up to this point. And you can imagine what that's like to have in just a moment all of your circumstances change from living a wealthy life to now being impoverished. You can imagine as he's making this journey, there's, there's no one with him. Uh, the, the ancient world was a hostile place. You could easily be overtaken by robbers or bandits. That's why we have Psalms like Psalm 121, because of those types of fears. You can understand what that was like to make that journey, unsure about your future, unsure about your safety, not knowing what the, the future might hold for you. And I'm sure that somewhere along the way, because he's walking and moving slowly, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but you have time when you're on a long journey by yourself to reflect on how you've lived your life. And I'm sure that in some of those moments, there were some things that he looked back on and that he regretted that he had done that had brought him to this place. And the reason why he was taking this journey was because of how he had behaved in the past. And I'm sure there were some things he wished he had done differently. But it's into this context, into this situation, where most likely Jacob outside, sleeping alone, away from the provisions of family and a drastic change in life circumstances, that God meets him. God shows up and reassures him about his future and his life. God tells him, you're not alone. I'm going to be with you, and you're going to be the one who's going to be the one I'm going to work through to accomplish my purposes in the world. Now, you might ask, when God showed up, did Jacob deserve this? Well, nothing in his life up to this point has spoken to us to say he has an admirable character. No, he's undeserving. And that's why it's God's mercy. God was not obligated. He could still have watched over Jacob this whole time and never told him that he was involved in his life. But it was mercy of why he shows up at an unexpected moment in his life to tell him, I'm with you. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to make it, and I'm going to bring you back. His whole future laid out right there in front of him, right? Not because he deserved it, but because God is mercy. And God often moves in mercy toward us in the same way. It's because of God's great mercy, that characteristic about God, that years later, one of Jacob's descendants named King David will say this about God. It's on the text. In the Psalms, he writes, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And when we consider that God is merciful, it becomes all the clearer when we think about how we interact with other human beings when it comes to this idea of mercy. And we realize that we display mercy imperfectly, unlike God. So in my community group this past week, we were reading one of the chapters in the book that we're going through, which is on relationships and about displaying mercy with people. And one of the things that the writer brought out is how that we don't often display it uh, in the same way that God does, we struggle with it. First, he defined mercy like this. He said, mercy is the kind, sympathetic, and forgiving treatment of others that works to relieve their distress 
and cancel their debts. And he says, for us as humans, we struggle with it. And he says, this is why we struggle. He says, we struggle because we tend to get mercy and justice all mixed up. We want mercy for ourselves because we want our lives to be comfortable. And we want justice for the other guy because we want our lives to be comfortable. And as self-absorbed sinners, we, want, we simply don't want to deal with distressed and flawed people. That's not the case with God. So the author went on to tell this one particular story in his life to get an example about what it looks like when we as human beings seek to display mercy uh, in relationships and how we find that we still need transformation and we still need God's work in our life, even when we're seeking to do what God has told us to do, to, to imitate his character uh, in life. So, uh, so a number of years ago, he and his wife had made the decision that they wanted to use their home for God's purposes. And so they said, hey, listen, uh, we're going to open up our home and help those who are in need uh, and allow them to come and stay with us. So they had done this a number of times. But on this occasion, uh, they got a call one Sunday evening. There was a young 17-year-old girl who had been put out of her home for her behavior. And so as a result, um, they decided they would take her in. Uh, and, and as some time passed, it became clear because of her behavior in her home that her parents didn't want her to return. And so they then at that moment had to make a decision whether or not they were going to invest long term in this relationship. And so they said, hey, you know what? We want to serve God. We want to show mercy to this young lady who's in a desperate and distressed situation. Let's get involved. Let's make the long term commitment to get involved in her life. And, and they did that. But it was interesting as he talked about how this played out in his life. I just want to read to you what he said, some of it of an excerpt so that you can hear it in his own words uh, about this relationship. He said the problem was that uh, this young lady tried my patience like few people have. The longer she stayed, the more candid our conversations became. We could see change beginning to take place in her perspectives on herself and on life in general. And we began to see her spiritual interests grow. But despite all these positive things going on, she could still really get on my nerves. She was immature, self-centered, rebellious, rude, illogical, messy, and noisy. I had never lived with anyone with all those qualities in one package. It seemed that if she improved in one area, she would, she would irritate me in another. She had the gift for bringing out the worst in me, although she never seemed to know it and would probably say we had a good relationship. See, when we as human beings try to show mercy to people because we're still flawed and our character is not perfect, even when we engage in acts to imitate God, we find that we're still wanting and that we still need transformation, not so with God. His character is flawless. And because his character is flawless, he moves toward us in mercy despite the fact that we're not the ideal human being. See, humans may rub off on us the wrong way, but God, because of his great mercy and his great patience, he doesn't, it, we don't get under his skin like we get under each other's skin. And that's why the text tells us repeatedly throughout the Bible, it keeps being said over and over and over again, that this God delights in showing mercy. And so because of that, God chooses to work with us 
broken people, just where we are, broken in whatever ways that life has broken us. And so that's one of the wonderful things about him. The second thing that the text reminds us about, about God, among the many attributes and his characteristics that we could talk about, is the fact that God is faithful, that God always seeks to keep his promises. He always does what he says. He always acts faithfully. If God says something, you can bank on it that he's going to accomplish that. In the text, we see him repeating the very promise that he made to Abraham. Now, he told Abraham when Abraham was alive, because now Abraham is dead, that I'm going to work through your family. I'm going to keep my promises to your descendants. And here in this text, God is keeping his word despite the fact that Abraham's not around to witness or see what God's doing. See, God keeps his word whether we're here or not here, whether we're on earth or not on earth. Whatever God says, how many ever years it takes, God will always do exactly what he said. You remember he told uh, Jacob's mother that when they were in her, in her womb that, listen, hey, the younger is going to rule over the older. God is, by doing this, giving, giving these Abrahamic promises to Jacob, is moving in that direction so that his word is being kept. And that's why God can always be trusted. That's why, unlike sometimes people in our lives, God never breaks his word. And that's why he's always worthy of your trust. God is aware of human affairs, and despite what humans are doing on the planet, God always has the ability to work out what he said he's going to do so that things turn out just like he said. And that's why Jacob can trust him to believe what God says when someday in the future, although he doesn't know what's going to happen, he's going to make it safely back to his home despite the struggles he's going to have uh, in his life. And that's one of the things that the text encourages us. Because of God's character, we should be able to put our full weight of trust in him. So that brings me to the main idea that I want to get across, and that's it's simply this, that this text reminds us when it comes to this concept of faith that we've been talking about, our faith relationship with God, it often begins with an unexpected encounter with God. This one who delights in showing mercy and displays his character through his faithfulness. But what it requires of us is that we respond rightly to this God, the one who shows up when we don't expect him. Now, one of the things that I have learned in my life is that there is a difference between having knowledge about God and knowing God. You can have information about someone. You can learn, like I've seen people learn all kinds of stats about a person. Uh, you could become a, a great biographer and research a person's life. It doesn't mean that you know that person or have a relationship with them. And it's the same thing about God. Sometimes people have lots of information. They have a whole bunch of head knowledge about God. I can tell you about there are those who are atheists, have PhDs in, in Bible and Semitics and the New Testament, and yet they do not know God. See, there's a difference between having information about God and being in relationship with the God of whom the information tells us about. See, when we come into contact with the God that the Bible testifies about, that's when faith comes alive in us. Let me give you a few examples of that. Remember Moses, he wasn't looking for God. He had been kicked out of Egypt because he had murdered someone, had ran for his life when he was 40 years old. He went out into the desert, and he had had the same kind of issue that uh, a life adjustment that Jacob had had. He had grown up wealthy, and now he was living in poverty. And God had worked things out in his life where he met a nice young lady, and she helped to change his life and made life nice. He had a good father-in-law, had a little career that he was making out as a shepherd, and one day when he thought his life was just moving along fine, 
God showed up in his life and changed the direction of his entire course of his life where he became the person that we know today and revere as Moses. Isaiah, he was just going along. The king had died. He was uncertain about things. He was not sure what was going to happen to the, to the government and to Israel, his nation. And then God showed up. And God said, I know that the king that you trusted in died, but the true king of Israel is still on his throne. I haven't left. I haven't moved and gone anywhere. Still here ruling, just like when Uzziah was there and when all the other kings will be there. The true king is still where he needs to be. We look at the apostle Paul, right? Look at his life. He thought he was serving God. He was persecuting Christians, even throwing his vote in to have them killed when the vote was taken. And one day, on a journey to try to be faithful to what he thought was right, God showed up unexpectedly, and his life changed. And he became the person we know today as the Apostle Paul. See, God, when he shows up, faith becomes alive, and the direction of our life changes when we encounter God. That's when our faith journey really begins, when we come into contact with the God that the Bible tells us about. But when we do encounter God, the, the most important thing for us is how are we going to respond to him when he does show up in our lives? And that's the second thing I want to show you from the text. So in the ancient world, uh, as with Muslims today, uh, dreams were viewed as an avenue by which uh, the divine can communicate with us. And so dreams were revered and viewed as, hey, this is a way that the divine realm, God can talk to me. Often in our society, we would dismiss that. We would look, not look at that same way, but there are those who do. So Jacob wakes up, and because of this, he believes that he has received a message from God, and he decides to respond rightly. He's messed up in his life before, but now he does something good, and, and we want to, to admit that and give that to him. Let me pick up in verse 16 and show that to you. So verse 16, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. The name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way, that I go and will give me bread, and, bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and the stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. In response to the vision that he receives, this dream that he has when he encounters the God that he's been hearing about, but now he realizes this God is real, and he now has had experience with this God, his response is the right response. He responds by worshiping this God and committing his whole life to God. He does that by making a vow. Uh, and by doing this, by making a vow, he binds himself to the God of his grandfather and the God of his father as a servant. And he makes his vow based on the promises of what God has already told him uh, in the dream. And he promises that he's going to uh, worship God and give to God. And that's what we see in the text. Now, you might see there, there's an extra line. There's debate on whether or not where the, uh, the promises of God stop and Jacob's vow starts. Uh, ESV is leaned towards being three things. Uh, other versions lean towards there being two things. That he might be saying here uh, simply that 
that the part about uh, then he shall be my God may be in the first part where he said that God is going to be his God. He's going to actually watch over him. It's not that he's going to serve him. But it could be the other way where he is making a promise that if God will do these things, then he'll worship God, depending on how you take that. So there's a break there. But the two things that we know for sure is, one, he's going to build a house of worship. This is going to become a place for worship. He's going to worship this God. He's going to be committed according to how he understands and practices worship during the customs of his day. The second thing he's going to do, which is uh, clear in the ancient uh, Near East about how they would do, was to give a tenth. He's going to tithe faithfully of all that God gives him. Now for him, most likely, he's not going to be going uh, giving money like we do. Uh, because he's going to be, hopefully, God's going to give him things in the sense of animals. And so this is going to return in the sense of sacrifices to God. And that's how he's going to give a tenth. But he's going to give regularly and faithfully as God increases him of what God has uh, given him. And so that's kind of the idea of what's going on, which gets to what I, I want to get to, which is this. Once we have encountered God, the right response is to do like Jacob did, to trust God, to worship him, and then to commit your life to him. See, a life that is lived by faith, this is one of the big things or themes of Scripture that moves from Old to New Testament, is that when we come to faith in God, faith in God is not a momentary decision that you make and walk away from. Faith in God is a commitment of a life that initiates in a moment but goes on for the rest of your life. It's a whole life commitment. When you came to Jesus, you were saying that you would be committed to him for the rest of your life, that you would serve him, that you would be under his rule as king, and that you would trust God through the ups and downs of life. That means that all of your life would be committed to God for the rest of your life until the day you die. I like what, one of the, what the author, the way he put it in our book that we're reading in community group, he says this. He says that you go about your life in this in-between time that is between your birth and the return of Christ, use it to the fullest to display the grace of Christ to others. He's saying, listen, that all of life should be lived for God's purposes, even in the mundane things of life should be seeked, you be used to seek to fulfill God's purposes in that way, to serve him and be obedient to his will. Why? Not only has Genesis testified to us that God is our creator and we owe our lives to him, but because God has matchless character. There's no being that exists that's like God. Isaiah the prophet testifies to that. There's no one in heaven. If you could scour all of the heavenly beings, you would find that no one compares to God. And if you were to compare all humans of history, there would be no one like God, let alone to talk about those who are in the, the underworld or hell. If you scoured there, you would find no one who can compare to God. He is really, really truly one of a kind. And that's why he deserves our worship and our praise. Uh, and, and because of the fact that he shows great mercy to those who are uh, unworthy. So how do we uh, encounter God? It's probably not going to be in the same way uh, that Jacob did. You're probably not going to go lay down uh, and God is going to show up in a powerful dream where you're going to see God and stuff like that. that that's, that's not generally how God works in the world in our lives today. And so that's probably not going to be, be happening. But there is an interesting way that we often do encounter God, which Jesus brings out to us in the calling of his disciples. So uh, in John's gospel, when Jesus starts to call his disciples, there's an interesting thing that happens uh, in a conversation with one of those disciples that Jesus says about himself that's related to this text. So Jesus has been calling disciples, and 
Uh, when you find a good thing, as you know, as often been said, you go tell other people about it. So he's calling people. And so one of the, the young men who's been called by Jesus says, hey, goes home and finds his family member and says, hey, listen, uh, we found the one that Moses had written about. He's here. Now, you need to come see this guy. Uh, and, and when Nathaniel hears about him and he finds out, well, where was he from? And he says, oh, he's from Nazareth. Uh, Nathaniel is not too happy about that. Uh, he's like, oh, he's from the wrong neighborhood. Yeah. He can't be the guy. He's from a bad place. You know, good things don't come out of bad places, you know. Uh, and, and so he's a little bit leery about meeting Jesus. But he, when he meets Jesus, something interesting happens. Let me show you that conversation. John chapter 1, verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. That's important because what do we know about Jacob? He's a what? Deceitful person. Right? That, that's a clue where we're going with this. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Most likely, what, uh, from the context that we pick up here, Nathaniel, what he was thinking about was this very story in his mind. And Jesus engages him about that very thing and brings an application point home. He takes what happened in Jacob's life and uses it to point to himself. And what's interesting is what he says in Jacob's vision. Jacob has a shadow of the things to come in God's revelation, but in Jesus we have the reality. And then what does Jesus say about him? He draws back to Jacob's dream, and he says, you remember that dream that you were contemplating while you were under the tree, and Jacob, your great, 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 how many ever greats back you have to go to get to Jacob, your grandfather? Uh, yeah, like him, the deceit thing, and you're trying not to be like that? Well, that dream that he had, it was pointing to me. And he says, when you look at the dream, I want you to notice something. Notice what he points to. He says, you remember the pathway that connected heaven and earth? That's me. He says, I'm the one who connects heaven and earth together. I'm the one who mediates heaven's resources to meet earth's needs. Jesus is God come to us in human form. He's the one who is our stairway to heaven. He's the one who connects us to heaven. And so ultimately, when we uh, hear the good news about what God has done in the person of Jesus, what happens for us is the same thing that happened for Jacob. We encounter God. Why is that the case? Because when the message of Jesus is proclaimed to us, there's someone else present when that message is being proclaimed. 
One of the things that you read about in the Old Testament is that God has a watchful eye over his word so that when his word is spoken, when it goes out, he watches over it to make sure that it accomplishes its purpose for the reason that he sent it out. And so when the message about Jesus is proclaimed, there's someone else present, the very spirit of God. And the spirit of God moves upon the hearts of men to do his powerful work so that we have an interaction and an encounter with God. And that for us, for us, which was, was imaginary, a distance, perhaps we had been learning about it, becomes real to us all of a sudden. And this God that we heard about now becomes to us a God that we know. And all of a sudden for us, what happened for Jacob becomes true. The God he had heard about reveals himself. And in the gospel, when it's proclaimed to us, the spirit takes the gospel and reveals God's character to us. When we look upon the cross of Christ, we see what God is like and God is revealed to us. We see that God is a merciful God, that he does not uh, lay upon the sins upon us and take out vengeance, but takes it upon himself. And we see that God is faithful. He didn't abandon his creation to destruction, but has acted faithfully so as that we might be saved and have life life with him. And in that moment, the spirit takes that and makes it real to us. And we have an encounter with God. And our life begins to change. And the wonderful thing about this is that the very thing that God promised Jacob, he promises to you. You remember when he gave the Great Commission at the end of his life, when he was getting ready to ascend back to heaven after he accomplished his work down here and he had been raised from the dead? He said to the disciples, when he gave them a mission, he said, listen, and lo, I'll be with you always, even until the end of the age. Same promise. I'm going to be with you just like I was with Jacob. So last night I was praying with someone and I was reminded of the very truths of this, uh, this message being played out in the life of someone who was here, who used to be attendance, uh, attender at our church. Uh, and I thought, you know what, I should share this because this is exactly what happened uh, in the life here. So uh, several times a year we have baptisms here at the church and we get a chance when, uh, because of the way we practice baptism, when, when a person gets ready to get baptized, they share how they came into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And there was a young man who used to attend our church. He had been here for a number of years, grown up in his childhood years here, and he had been to our VBSs, gone to church here, had heard messages proclaimed here, had been in our children's ministry, been taught the word of God, and had been in a home where Christian parents were at. And so he had heard about God, and that was the reality of it. But when he got to his high school years, like all of us, because we want to fall in with certain people, he got influenced into a certain crowd, and his life started to go in a very different direction than his parents were hoping that his life would go. Uh, and, and so his mother began to pray for him. She began to enlist others to pray for her son. But she, she was concerned about the direction that his life was going in. He had heard about God. He had been testified about God, yet he had not come into contact with God until one day he encountered God for himself. And when he encountered God for himself, he came, he heard the message of the gospel from his mother and placed his faith in Jesus Christ. The radical change was so radical and so sudden that most of us, when we first heard the story, we thought, you know what? That brother must have just smoked some weed. 
That's really what it was like for us. We were like, maybe he had smoked some weed and it was laced. You know, we don't know what happened. You know, we, that's what we were thinking. We were like, man, I mean, that's too radical of a change for that brother. You know, like, like his life was going in this direction. And it was like, whoa, like, like, just like that. Right. And we were like, I mean, come on. Like, like, I mean, like, whoa, you know, like, come on. I mean, he really couldn't like, I mean, like, I mean, really have changed like that. Right. And then a year went by. And he was committed to Jesus. And then another year went by and he was committed to Jesus. And then another year went by and he was committed to Jesus. And it seemed like as the years passed, his commitment to Jesus kept growing. And he's still faithfully serving Jesus today. Brothers and sisters, it still happens right here. And we had a chance to witness that. God, if you will encounter the God of the Bible, your life will go in another direction. See, the scriptures, Jesus said this. He said to the Pharisees of the day, listen, you search the scriptures for life, but the scriptures testify about me. But you're unwilling to come to me so that I will give you life. If you will come to the Jesus whom the Bible testifies about, he will give to you the very thing that you're looking for. This God is real, and he moves in real human affairs. You just need to come to him encounter him. And then when you do encounter him, worship him and give your whole life to him. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that you are living and an active God, that your word is living and active, that it's sharp like a sword, that it penetrates and reaches us right where we are. We thank you, Lord, that uh, Lord, often you show up in our lives at unexpected times. We're not planning on you. We're not looking for you. You just, in mercy, approach us. You initiate it. You give us faith. You cause us to believe in you. Then you give us these wonderful promises that we do not deserve. And you guide our lives so that they end up right where you said they were going to end up. You told Jacob, Lord, before he ever lived his life, that he would be returned because you would take care of it. And Lord, I thank you because you've already spoken about our end as well. That those who love you, those who belong to you, that we will be with you forever. You've already laid it out. You've already worked it out. And we're just now having a chance to live it out. We thank you for that. We thank you because of your great mercy and faithfulness. We can bank on your word. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here today who have heard about you, like Job said, I've heard about you from the hearing of the ear. Now I've seen you. I've encountered you. I pray that they would encounter you, Lord that you would become real to them. And for all of those in this room who have encountered you, Lord, may we be like Jacob in this way. May, may we imitate that behavior. Live a life that worships you and a life that is devoted to you, even in the mundaneness of life, the very ordinary things of life. May we show uh, by the decisions that we make that we know who you are, that we believe in you, and that we trust you. Lord, we thank you that you're still active in the world today, turning people around and sending their lives in a different direction. All the praise and glory goes to you alone. You deserve to be worshipped. You deserve to be honored. You deserve to be lifted up. And we give all of the thanks to you. We glorify you, Father, and you alone. Your name alone is worthy to be praised. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Would you please stand with me as our worship team leads us in our final song, and then we'll dismiss you in a moment.